Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERA Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Well, the objective of both hospice care and palliative care is pain and symptom relief. Prognosis and goals of care tend to differ. Palliative care is specialized medical care for people with a serious illness and focused on providing relief for the symptoms with or without curative intent. Hospice is comfort care without curative intent. The patient no longer has curative options or has chosen not to pursue treatment because side effects outweigh benefits. Today, my guest is Steve Cohn, Chief of Philanthropy, Marketing and Communications with Capital Caring Health. He will talk about similarities and differences between palliative and hospice care and what patients and their families should know when seeking hospice services. He'll also talk about hospice eligibility, care providers, nature of services, and locations where hospice care is provided. So welcome, Steve, and thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be with you, Cheryl. Thanks for having me. Okay, well, Steve, obviously you heard in my introduction, I talked a little bit about the objectives of palliative care and and hospice care, but elaborate on those objectives, like, for example, where each is provided or the type of patients, maybe their condition, and then along with that, perhaps talk also about prognosis and, and the goals of the care and how each of them differ. Sure. Let me uh, start with palliative care. So, First of all, um, palliative care ranges um, uh, across a wide spectrum of um, medical and behavioral uh, support. Um, here at Capital Caring Health, we, we like to use the term advanced illness care because not everyone understands palliative. It's a medical term. It's you know, not consumer friendly. So we use advanced illness care. And we provide, like um, most organizations um, in our world, we provide um, advanced illness care to anyone who has one or more chronic illnesses. Um, and they, uh, they, uh, they really have two avenues to pursue with that, either going to a clinic that provides this kind of care or um, folks like us go to their home and do it. And specifically in our case, the vast majority of our palliative care, but not all of it, but the vast majority is provided to people who have one or more chronic illnesses and are homebound, meaning it's not easy for them to go to a doctor's office, go to a clinic, go to an emergency room. Um, So, uh, and our, our advanced illness care uh, is really provided by a team that not only tries to deal with the symptoms that the, the patient has, uh, and uh, most of the time the patient has some kind of pain and discomfort, so we try to alleviate that. We're also trying to cure them if possible. We also provide to them and their caregiver and or family members uh, behavioral support, you know, how to help, how to deal with their emotions while they're going through um, this type of treatment. Uh, Also, complete lifestyle um, overview and and support. Um, What kind of exercise, if any, can they do? What kind of diet should they be on? And if so, we often can provide the meals that connect to that diet. Um, is their home uh, as safe as it can be given their limitations of movement? All of those factors uh, and pursuits are provided by us. Um, and that type of uh, palliative advanced illness care uh, is common among the not-for-profit organizations like us that provide advanced illness and hospice care. Moving to hospice care, um, a patient is eligible for hospice care 
when two physicians, usually an attending physician or someone that they've been using, and one of ours, both agree that the patient most likely has six months or less to live. And um, when they enroll in hospice, based upon that definition, the vast majority of the time, um, hospice providers like Capital Caring Health provide that hospice care in their home or wherever they reside. It can also be an assisted living facility, a long-term care facility, um, sometimes in a hospital room if they're too fragile to move back home. But <clears throat> we, whenever possible, try to provide hospice end-of-life care where the patient is most comfortable, and that's most of the, most of the time uh, in their home. And as you stated, Cheryl, um, the big difference between hospice care and palliative care medically is in hospice, we're not trying to cure them anymore. That's been tried and tried and tried. And, and so at this point, um, our goal is to provide as much comfort as possible, a totally pain-free um, uh, situation. Uh, and the vast majority of the time, we're able to do that. And we, and we supply all the necessary uh, elements, a hospital bed. Uh, intravenous equipment, drug routines, and so forth, as well as we also, again, like in palliative care, advanced illness care, have a whole team, nurses, doctors, social workers, uh, chaplains, uh, non-denominational chaplains, all of that is provided. And by the way, um, hospice care is free of charge. And um, because we're a not-for-profit is, and, and so is palliative care. Um, in our case, as a not-for-profit, if for some reason the patient is underinsured or uninsured, uh, we fill that gap, uh, which is why part of my role, as you mentioned, is philanthropy. Uh, one other point about hospice care. Um, Capital Caring Health is the largest children's hospice provider on the East Coast. And um, children's hospice is different because based upon a law passed in 2010 that we uh, and others pushed to get through, um, with children, we're also trying to cure them. That's part of the hospice uh, benefit. And 15 or 15% 15 of the time or so we do. Uh, sometimes it's cancer that goes in remission. Sometimes it's birth defects that we can, that we can uh, alleviate or fix. So I just wanted to make that point about children's hospice being different. And, and thank you for that. And that's, that's very helpful. I, and I really do want to spend a lot of time on hospice, but just a couple of questions, because since this program also goes across the country, in terms of, and I'm going to use your term now because I like that rather than palliative care is advanced illness care. Pain management is a part of palliative care, advanced illness care. Is is that correct? Yes, it is. And so the other thing is, is that while you mentioned uh, capital caring, in general, does Medicare and other insurance cover palliative care um, or advanced illness care? Um, you know, it's pretty much like going to a doctor's office. The only charge that may appear is copay. Okay. Now, copay charges do appear with palliative care. They don't, uh, there is no such thing in hospice care. And you'd mentioned also as to, is it usually doctors and nurses then that are involved then in advanced illness care insofar as pain management and whatever is necessary? Absolutely, because um, it's always a team approach. Nurses, doctors, uh, social workers, chaplains, that's the team. Yeah. And nurses at various levels. And, and also visitation really depends on um, uh, the personal situation of the patient. Sometimes they need daily visits, sometimes they don't. Uh, sometimes... Um, 
um, you know, we can help them over the phone. And a point that reminds me of, in our case, Capital Caring Health, one of the huge benefits of our advanced illness care for homebound patients is they can call us anytime, day or night, and they will reach a team member, not an answering service. Uh, so a team member is always available anytime. And if a visit is necessary, that can be done in a few hours. Um, and so major point. Um, I don't know if other organizations tend to do that, but that's what we provide as part of that uh, advanced illness care. And I think it will be helpful now turning to hospice care. Let us know a little more. How does hospice care then compare to traditional hospital hospital care for terminally ill patients? Uh, what do our listeners need to know about that? Well, one of the major uh, reasons why hospice care was established was to prevent um, the necessity of hospitalization. Because, um, you know, when you ask people where they want to spend the last weeks and months of their lives, 95% don't want to be in a hospital. And it's not, you know, hospitals do the best they can, but they're not set up for very individualized comfort care, uh, like someone can get in, in their familiar surroundings. So the major difference is their home versus in a hospital. Uh, they don't have to be rushed to the emergency room. And also major point, they don't have to die often alone in an intensive care unit uh, or at three in the morning in the hospital. Um, you know, if they're home or even in an assisted living facility, um, they can be surrounded by their loved ones um, all of the time and interact with them. And to that point, I guess one of the things that would be helpful to understand is who decides when hospice care is needed and, and where it will be provided? Because you'd mentioned it could be at home where that's the preferred, but it, if someone is already in assisted living or some other kind of facility. But I think I think the decision as to when hospice care is appropriate, you mentioned about six months. How is that decided? I think that's really sort of a major question that a lot of people wonder about. Yes. Uh, so Cheryl, as you indicate, the benefit was established in 1982 um, for six months or more if necessary. And so 40, uh, well, let's see, we actually, Capital Caring Health started before the benefit was put in the law. So um, this is now our 46th year. And um, despite the fact that uh, we're approaching a half century of hospice care in this country, the average hospice stay is a few weeks. And, and for many people, it's a few days. And I view that, and my colleagues view that as tragic, because trying to go it alone uh, uh, when someone is terminally ill puts a massive amount of stress on the patient and even more on the family and or caregiver, family member. And none of that is necessary. So who makes the decision? You know, it's a number of uh, decision makers. It can be the patient. It can be a family member. It can be a physician. It can be all three. And um, it's a shame that for the most part, people wait too long because of two points. One, it's been proven over and over again that someone in hospice care lives on average a month longer, pain-free. And, and two, you know, they don't have to uh, be rushed to the hospital. They don't have to uh, be hospitalized. Um, and as a result of that, being at home or in another facility, they have a lot more 
time, we call it precious time, to be with those they want to be with, close friends and loved ones. Uh, and we try to make their experience uh, such that if they have wishes um, that they'd like to fulfill in the community, a restaurant they'd like to go to one more time if they're able to get outside, um, a movie they want to watch, we, we always try to make that, that possible. To get married, <laughs> uh, that happens. So we try to go above and beyond um, what any hospital can provide. That's just not what they do. To provide a wonderful experience for end-of-life care. And um, what I like to say is, so people will say, well, my hesitation to enter hospice care is I'm giving up on life. We hear that all the time. And our response to that is you're not giving up on life. What you're giving up on is a better life for an extended period of time. And by the way, it's not like the Roach Motel where you go in and you can't get out. Um, if someone enters hospice care and they decide at any time that they don't want to be in it anymore, they, they can just say so. Uh, and sometimes people get better and we let them leave hospice care. So it's, it's not uh, a one-way street that they can't back out of if they wish to. I think that's really helpful then. So would you suggest that families discuss hospice care before it's needed? I mean, if somebody does have a diagnosis of a terminal illness, that they discuss exactly what they want and when that should begin? What do you suggest? Yes. Uh, and the benefit of this interview, Cheryl, um, is people can learn about what hospice is all about. So that that's the big problem. People have misconceptions. I have to go somewhere. It costs money. It's a death sentence. None of that is true. What it is, is providing a much better period of time when a person is terminally ill. And so therefore, that's a good segue into my next question is, what should patients and their families know about hospice and what questions should they ask when looking for hospice care so that they have a a good idea of what to expect. And to that point also, help us if you're going to be giving an answer, but if there's some resources where people can look that up or they can write down what you're going to say, that would be helpful. Right. So I actually uh, have covered uh, with you um, what hospice care is all about. Um, it's all about um, providing comfort and a pain-free environment for a terminally ill individual, uh, hopefully for many months, not just for a few days. Um, so we really encourage people to enroll sooner, not later. And um, they, can go, they can just type in hospice on Google and they can find quite a bit of information. Um, they can also, anyone nationwide, can go to our website, capitalcaring.org, capital with an A, capitalcaring.org, and learn all about uh, advanced illness slash palliative care, all about hospice care. Um, everything that um, they wanna know is there. Uh, but the major points are, we make the patient as comfortable and pain-free as possible. We provide that 95% of the time wherever they reside. We provide it free of charge. And it doesn't even matter if you're an American citizen. Just living in the United States uh, makes you eligible. And it's for any age and any illness. Um, it's surprising to me that I hear occasionally, well, my mom has dementia. Does that allow her to be in hospice care? Yes. Dementia today is the third leading cause of death among adults, first heart disease, then cancer. Well, and, and I'm thinking also, I think some of the questions that I might ask and, and help me on this is like, is the hospice team, if I choose to have hospice in my home, 
Is the hospice team there 24-7? Do they need an extra bed to sleep in? Are they going to be feeding my loved one? Can I come in and interact with my family member? I guess if I would, I would want to know more what, what to expect, if, especially in my home. So two answers. One is in, in order to enroll in hospice care, you need to call a hospice organization like ours. And we provide that number 24 by 7 on our website. Um, and any questions you have, um, a trained nurse on our side will answer. Um, so, um, you know, that's, um, that's why they're there. And um, what was the other point? Um, well, I'm just kind of wondering how the team interacts with the patient in the home. So I had, a, I had a woman tell me who we cared for, her sister at one point, hospice-wise, and then her mom. She said, Steve, the fantastic thing about your hospice team is they're visible when we need them and invisible when we don't. So we're not intruding on the family, uh, but we're part of the family when it's needed. And I, I love the way that expression, uh, I love that expression as I just related it. We really do become part of the family, but we're not there to intrude upon, you know, the family. Um, and, you know, we have a good sense for when we're needed and when we're not, because we've been doing this a long time. Um, and it's a patient-specific, you know, situation. Sometimes the patient needs daily visits. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes uh, one or two visits a week. Um, but we monitor that very closely. And of course, we talk to them if they're able to. Uh, and definitely whoever is in their family uh, with them to ascertain all the time and every day and every night how they're doing. We check at night as well as during the day. And we get there when we're needed. Okay. Well, this is a good time to take a short break. We are talking today about advanced illness care, also known as palliative care, as well as hospice. And in case you tuned in late, our guest is Steve Cohn, who is the Chief of Philanthropy, Marketing, and Communications with Capital Caring Health. And you're listening to WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We are having a discussion today about advanced illness care, also known as palliative care, as well as hospice care. And we're talking with Steve Cohn, who is the Chief of Philanthropy, Marketing, and Communications with Capital Caring Health. And Steve, before the break, we talked about hospice care in the home. But before that happens, I think it's helpful for us to know, are there health care specialists or health some type of healthcare provider that provide information about hospice or if families receive a diagnosis of, of terminal illness or a need for hospice care, how, how can they find out about hospice? Uh, Cheryl, actually, the a majority of the time, the patient and the family learn about hospice care from hospital staff. So many people are in the hospital, they're deemed to be terminal, and the hospital staff tells them that they really should seriously consider hospice care. And that can be a nurse or a physician telling them that. And, and that is the majority of, of um, situation. That, that's how people learn about hospice most of the time. 
the other way they learn about it is from a family physician. Um, and sometimes that physician is very knowledgeable and sometimes they don't know any more than the family. Uh, and that's why sometimes uh, folks wait far too long to enroll. And that's also a reason that organizations like Capital Caring Health do as much as we can in social media and paid media to get the message out about what hospice care is all about. So if now they are ready to have hospice, in terms of the interaction between the family and the hospice that they've selected, how how are the hospice team members selected? Uh, what is what is sort of the criteria? And then explain a little bit more about the role of each of the these hospice team members. What what services are included in hospice care? So, uh, from a medical standpoint, it's a team uh, which includes usually several nurses and a physician. And their primary aim is um, medicating the patient while not over-medicating them, but medicating them to just to the point where they're not suffering any pain. Uh, in fact, they usually find that patients have been over-medicated, which is a detriment and oftentimes, uh, you know, um, can uh, shorten their lifespan. So when they enter hospice, the medical team is really focused on, let's make the patient as comfortable and pain-free as possible. Um, and um, let's make sure that um, if they were on a multitude of medications previously, that most of those sometimes all of those are no longer used. The patient uh, may want to talk about the, the weeks or months they have left. Uh, they can do that with any of the medical staff, but we also have specially trained social workers and chaplains uh, that work with them as well. And I think also a major point, which we see is most of the time the patient mentally is okay but the family members aren't. The family members are very stressed out because they're going to lose their loved one. And that's where our social workers and chaplains are. are that's why they're so valuable, because that's their role to comfort and discuss with the family and the patient's loved ones anything they want to talk about. Um, and the, the goal is to alleviate their stress as much as possible. And that's why hospice care is such a huge benefit to everyone involved, the family as well as the patient. And that's something you can't get in a hospital. Um, so it's another reason why people should choose hospice over hospitalization whenever they can. And to that point then, Steve, after the patient passes away, does uh, hospice care include some kind of grief support or how long maybe do they say maintain some kind of a contact with the family following the death of the patient? Right. We provide grief counseling to every family who have lost a loved one in our care for as long as necessary. It can be weeks, months, or even over a year. And it's, um, uh, we have specially trained grief counselors as well as non-denominational chaplains. We personalize the counseling based upon the situation. It can be one-on-one. -on -one, it can be in small groups. It can go back and forth. Um, and um, um, we view that as an essential part of our overall hospice benefit, and it is. And also we have specially trained counselors for children who have lost a parent, a grandparent, close friend, sibling. Um, and we also try to provide this counseling to the greater community. They don't necessarily have to have had a patient relationship with us. So you can call it mental health counseling because that's what it is, free of charge from 
the not-for-profit hospice groups around the country. And I wanted to also just verify, you've, you've been talking about members of the team that may come from your organization or another hospice organization, but is there, and you mentioned chaplains, and I also was wondering about physicians, but is there still then a, a role for, say, the patient's primary care physician that he or she saw before? Or if they are, um, they attend some kind of a, a religious, like a synagogue or church or whatever, it might their pastor or rabbi or um, other cleric also be a part of the team so that the person really feels comfortable with those people? Can you kind of mix and match? Yeah, excellent question. And so the simple answer is, the patient can interact with anyone else they want to, any of their previous or current physicians and any any uh, of their faith partners that they want to. So uh, we don't we don't preclude any of that. Um, we provide chaplains if they wish that, um, but it's definitely not a requirement. If, if they have a pastor, a, a rabbi, um, a a faith healer of some kind, no problem at all. Totally up to them. The bereavement counseling is something that, again, um, the, in the case of the family, of course, that's an option that they can take with us, but they don't have to. Uh, they can use um, anyone they wish to. Um, uh, so it's, it's always an option, and it's at uh, their request. And when the hospice team comes in, do the members sit down then with the, the, the family, the, the, the primary caregiver, and develop a, a plan Yes. in terms of the, the goals? How does that work? What does that look like? You just explained it. <laughs> <laughs> they develop a plan of care, and um, it's usually a pretty uh, comprehensive discussion about what to expect, um, when to call them, when to call us if we're not there, um, and the fact that they can call us anytime. Um, you know, if they see these types of symptoms, how to either deal with them immediately and or get a hold of us. So it's, it's all based upon the patient situation. And, um, we spend a lot of time, usually a whole day, uh, on that topic with those that are caring for the patient, uh, family members or close friends. Sometimes they don't have any family. Sometimes they have close friends. If they have nobody, um, uh, we um, sometimes put them in one of our inpatient facilities so that they have, um, they have us as their family around the clock. Well, and thank you for, for mentioning that, because I was also wondering if, you know, of course, we live in a a very close urban area, and I'm just wondering if in some settings where maybe the hospice team is a little bit further away, can that be an issue in terms of calling if you need them kind of uh, situation? What might be the case there if there's a geographical separation between where the hospice team is and where the patient and the family are? Well, uh, you know, it, it gets more challenging in extreme rural situations. There's no question about that. Um, and sometimes that's why um, uh, groups like us have inpatient facilities. About 5% of the time, uh, a patient needs around-the-clock care. Um, and or they have nowhere else to go. They're either homeless or they're by themselves, and we think they're too fragile to be left by themselves. So that's why we operate inpatient centers, which are not like a hospital environment. Um, they range from six beds to 15 beds, typically, um, they're usually in a residential setting, meaning a standalone residential looking facility. 
not always. Um, one of our inpatient centers is in a wing in a hospital, but it's much different looking than the hospital um, itself. You know, it, these are big suites, um, really beautifully done. And whether it's in an inpatient facility outside of the hospital or in the hospital, we allow visitation around the clock and you can sleep with your loved one with the patient. We provide the bedding and, and meals and whatnot. So people never have to leave if they don't want to. One thing I did want to verify, I mean, you've been mentioning frequently in terms of hospice care is without charge. Is, is that true also around the, the country in some places does Medicare cover the cost of, of hospice care or other kinds of insurance? What what do we need to know about that? Yeah, so hospice is um, covered by Medicare, Medicaid, and private insurance if people are, are under 65 and or don't qualify for Medicaid. So the vast majority of the time, insurance absolutely pays for hospice care. And what about the, the length of time? I mean, again, you've mentioned six months. Up to six months. Up to six and, months. And then longer if um, uh, after that period of time, uh, the hospice organization has to uh, discuss with Medicare whether an extended period of time is warranted. And um, those decisions are made. Uh, you often see extended hospice care for people with ALS, for instance, who uh, can be terminal for quite a while. You know, at, as at the end stages of ALS, that can be many, many months. But the vast majority of the time, six months uh, of care are is provided free of charge. Okay. And I also wanted to ask you about the term keeping the patient comfortable. I mean, we've talked already about establishing what the what the plan is going to be the pl and the primary goals. But is there a difference then, uh, and maybe you've alluded to it already, about what is meant by keeping the patient comfortable and what, what's involved in making that decision? Who makes it? How is it determined? Well, comfortable takes two forms, pain-free and emotionally uh, as happy as possible. And... The vast majority of the time, the emotional comfort is because they're in a familiar surrounding, not in a hospital bed next to somebody else they don't know. So being at home or somewhere else that uh, they're familiar with, it can be a relative's home, it can be an assisted living facility, etc. cetera. Um, th that, that is a major part of why they become comfortable with the care they're receiving and not stressed out about um, their environment. And environment's very important, very, very important. You know, aging in place is a term that uh, is used a lot today. And there are many surveys that indicate the same thing. 95% of people that live in the United States want to stay in their home till the very end. They don't want to be hospitalized. That's why the word comfort is so important. And I was also wondering now, again, we've talked about at home, but if someone is already, say, in some kind of a long-term care facility or maybe even in a nursing home, is the same concept of hospice provided in those settings or is that more likely to be the staff of and the people who are affiliated with those facilities where people work. How does that work? And there's so many older adults now who are living in these types of facilities. What do we need to know about that? Well, um, sometimes these facilities want outside hospice care like ours for their patients. Sometimes they provide that. We see a case where they are providing some of them hospice care, but if the patient needs very comprehensive around-the-clock care, they ask if they can move them into one of our inpatient facilities. 
it's a combination of both. Sometimes the assisted living facility and nursing home provide hospice care. Sometimes they don't. The vast majority of the time, they don't provide comprehensive around-the-clock care. And I suppose that if the situation was such where someone did need hospice care, they could inquire as to whether or not hospice care is provided or whether they need to explore other options. Would you agree? Yeah, usually when a person enters into an assisted living facility or a nursing home, that's part of what uh, is discussed with them, how hospice care will eventually be provided or what the options are. One thing that I, I noticed in looking at uh, the Capital Caring Health website is, is that there is a recruitment for volunteers, hospice volunteers. Talk more about that. What, what is the role and the time commitment of hospice volunteers? What kind of people sign up? More information. Right. Um, our volunteer situation is pretty typical of other not-for-profit hospice groups. We have as many volunteers as we have employees. In our case, about 600 employees and about 600 volunteers. And uh, the volunteers, their time commitment ranges. Um, They're all trained pretty extensively. And um, many of them wish to uh, do things like tuck in calls where they, they actually call the patient every night to see how they're doing and or visit them physically. Um, They uh, provide, um, you know, things like uh, treats, uh, if the patient can handle them, special food items, um, um, other things that the patient may may want, uh, certain clothing or um, articles that will cheer them up. Also, they can sit with family members like uh, our social workers do. So it's really much like um, having an added layer of, uh, of emotional support thanks to our volunteers. And if someone's listening right now and was interested in volunteering, what would you tell them that they need to do, for example, with capital caring? And maybe this is true in other places around the country. What, what do they need to do and know and do? Well, all of our websites have uh, a volunteer section where they can request that someone get a hold of them to discuss them becoming a volunteer. And is there, is there a commitment in terms of time or is it uh, really up to the volunteer as to, you know, how much time they're willing to devote to helping out? Well, it's up to the volunteer, but we do want them to commit to something, right? Some period, you know, a day a week, uh, two hours a day for two days, whatever. Uh, We make an agreement with them on that. They can change that whenever they want. Uh, Some volunteers, for instance, like to work in our thrift stores. The vast majority of not-for-profit hospice groups have thrift stores where people donate clothing and and other house goods. And um, usually in a thrift store, we have one full-time paid manager and everyone else is a volunteer. And um, that's a very popular form of volunteering, by the way. Okay. Well, a couple more questions. We're getting to the close of the interview, but um, one uh, one thing I did want to know is about the state and federal regulatory standards that hospice facilities need to meet. I think people and families want to know that there is some kind of uh, oversight uh, associated with hospice. Yeah, the major oversight uh, is uh, from Medicare. And Medicare does pretty intense audits regularly with hospice organizations. Uh, And then each state has different requirements. Um, They they have different requirements for the medical staff um, and different requirements for hospice uh, care uh, in general. So. Um, Federal is really Medicare. Um, Medicare is really the federal arm that uh, 
you know, um, make sure that uh, certain standards are being met and they pull surprise audits and that kind of thing. And I'm wondering, is that information readily available? I mean, first of all, you're thinking about families who are dealing with all of these emotions related to the the patient and that, but if they are seeking hospice care, that they can find out if, uh, if the hospice is actually providing quality care to patients, any way that they can learn more to make sure that they're making the right choice? Well, uh, families always have the option of telling an organization they'd like to talk to other people that experience the care. And we, for instance, uh, are always happy to uh, put them in touch with families that we have cared for their loved one. And um, I don't think Medicare publishes uh, results on each individual hospice organization. But, you know, a lot of people uh, rate the hospice organizations that they've used. And, you know, you can always find that information by uh, Googling an organization that does what we do. Well, and it sounds sounds like word of mouth is a, a good way to find out. Absolutely. And I'm thinking and and hopefully that this doesn't happen too often, but in this in the event that it's just not working or the hospice is not providing the kind of services that the patient and the family needs, is there any way that the family can get out of it or just ask the people to leave? What, what do they need to know? They can tell the hospice team to leave at any point. The positive news is that's very rare. It's very rare that a family um, are not happy uh, with the hospice care that's being provided. And sometimes it's also because they're just under a lot of stress and little things that shouldn't really be uh, an issue become an issue because of the stress that most hospice organizations are trying to care for the family, as I indicated earlier, more than emotionally than the patient who doesn't seem to need as much emotional support in, in a lot of cases. So, but the bottom line is it's pretty rare that a family just hates the care they're, they're seeing provided. It's very, very rare that that happens. Or, or they may expect certain services that are not being provided, even though they're not sure what should be provided because they've never experienced this before. Yeah, but most of the time we can do whatever they request. Right. Other than, as a matter of fact, if they want us to try to cure the patient, you know, we'll, we'll advise against that, but we'll do it. The problem is that's not covered by insurance. It can be, be pretty complicated. It can be. We try to simplify it as much as possible. Understand. But yeah, a lot of factors. So final question, any recommended resources to learn more about hospice? Uh, you can give your, your website address again and any closing remarks that you just want to share. Two things. Anyone anywhere in the nation can go to capitalcaring.org and find out anything they want to know about advanced illness care and hospice care. They can also go to um, um, NPHI, NPHI, uh, org. That's the National Partnership for Healthcare and Hospice Innovation. And on their homepage, they'll find a toll-free number. They'll also find that on the top of our homepage, uh, a toll-free number that anyone can call that will put them in touch with any of the hundred members of that association. We were the founding member of Capital Caring Health. And um, that's a very valuable resource because, you know, you and I live in uh, the Washington, D.C. metro area, but maybe a loved one or close friend who we think needs hospice care lives in another state. And um, if you just call and say, look, uh, my mom lives in Michigan, uh, I think she needs hospice care. Can 
how can you help me? They'll put you in immediate touch with one of our sister organizations in that area that can care for your mom. So that toll-free number is very important for people that want to uh, uh, investigate hospice or palliative care uh, anywhere else in the country. Okay. Well, I want to thank Steve Cohen, Chief of Philanthropy, Marketing, and Communications with Capital Caring Health, for joining me today. Thank you, Steve. It was a pleasure to chat with you. My pleasure, Cheryl. Thank you. If you want to learn more about Aging Matters, of course, you can visit our website, which is agingmattersonline.com. And of course, at this site, you can access all of the Aging Matters radio podcasts that we have produced, as well as the TV show episodes. And those podcasts can be found on Apple and Spotify. You can find that on the website. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media. You can learn more about that company at inkmouthmedia.com. So thank you for listening to Aging Matters today. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. 